Why is freedom important beyond Earth? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Charles Cockell. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Charles Cockell. Charles is professor of astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. His academic interests encompass life in extreme environments, the habitability of extraterrestrial environments, and the exploration and settlement of space. He has previously worked at NASA and the British Antarctic Survey. His work has taken him to both poles and many other extreme environments. He has published many scientific papers and numerous books, including a series on the conditions for liberty beyond Earth, and he has a forthcoming book, which he'll quickly talk to us about in our conversation today. He is also the chair of the Earth and Space Foundation, a nonprofit organization he established in 1994. Charles, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks a lot, Alex, and thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Charles, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation and answers lead us. Our question today that we formulated was, why is freedom important beyond Earth? And I think this will ultimately be an opportunity to explore challenges and barriers to liberty humans could face as an interplanetary species. So one thing I want to start with is that, in general, when it comes to these conversations, and we'll get to some specific later, but... It's, it seems to me a lot of people have a sort of blind optimism for the future of humanity and space, as if, as if the technology itself and, and what we can do here on Earth, if only that's moved to space and so on and so forth, that's all we have to do, and then we have flourishing. But, but you don't seem to be as optimistic, generally speaking, as far as I see. So, so, so why is that? Yeah, no, I think you raise a really important and interesting point, and I'm not sure where this, is, where this comes from. It may be a utopianism that comes from the early vision of space exploration. But there is this common idea that once we leave the Earth's atmosphere and travel beyond the home planet, people are going to be transformed. Maybe it's because people watch things like Star Trek. The idea that once you go beyond the Earth, economics disappears, political philosophy disappears, and everyone lives these uh, anodyne lives where they all get on with each other. There's never any conflict. And People are only interested in exploration and doing science. And that would be a wonderful future, although I'm not sure it would be wonderful. It may actually be thoroughly boring, but it would certainly be wonderful from the point of view of getting rid of human conflict. But I think it's unrealistic, and it is utopian. And when humans do go beyond the Earth, I don't think their behaviour is going to change substantially in any way. They will have a different perspective. They will be looking at uh, worlds that are very different to the environments we're used to on the Earth. But the fundamental behavior of humans and the way in which they interact with one another, uh, I don't think will change. And so people have this idea that, that once we go beyond the Earth, um, it, it's unpleasant to talk about conflict. And it's unpleasant to talk about people fighting for liberty against tyranny, because that's to introduce the errors of the past, as people see it. And therefore, it's to degrade uh, a vision of the human future beyond the Earth. So I would say that I'm not a pessimist about space exploration. I like to think I'm a bit more of a realist. And if one wants to dig straight into political philosophy, uh, I'm of the view of, of, uh, of Madison, uh, which is that human beings are not angels. And that if you start to construct government beyond the earth on the assumption that people are angels, then you will make errors. The best way to proceed into the space environment is to assume 
uh, that there will be conflict and to assume that people are uh, have wickedness in them when they get power and to construct the systems of governance and human organization around those assumptions of some inherent wickedness inside human beings. And Machiavelli understood this, Madison particularly brought it to the fore. But in fact, many political philosophers uh, over the years have understood this as one of the key uh, problems of human organization, which is not to try and create utopias. I sometimes say that instead of trying to create a utopia, what you should try and create is an anti-dystopia. You're trying to head off the worst outcomes with the hope of at least achieving the best you can. And that's my view of space exploration and, and building societies beyond the Earth. I'm not a pessimist, I like to think that I'm a realist, but it does great against those people who do like to think that when we go beyond the Earth, build societies on the Moon and Mars, we're going to create utopias. Yeah, and, and to add on to that exact point at the end there, that I, I think what's clear in your answer there and also when I read some of your stuff is that um, you also are very interested in like a, a longer time frame into the future than, than some people are, at least that I detect when I re read their stuff. That is to say, to flip that around, when I read a lot of articles or see how other people talk about space, it's often like a, a shorter time scale. And they talk about, you know, in, in the short time frame, for instance, look how great it is out there. We can colonize X planet. There's no nuclear war. There's no overbearing government. But it seems that to me, the key to your thoughts and what you think is the key to understanding the future in space is to have like sort of a, a longer frame of mind and think, okay, if we are going to establish, you know, interplanet an interplanetary species, then there's we're doing that for a while. So we have to think about all the problems that come with that after a while. That's what I get out of a lot. What you do is that you want to be more forward thinking rather than just twenty years at a time, for instance. Yeah, I think there's an element of that, but I would also say that I think that liberty, questions of liberty, uh, actually came apparent at the beginning of the space age. It's just mm. that people again tend to back off from this idea that there is this conflict between liberty and tyranny beyond the Earth. So, for example, in the 1950s and 60s, when, when satellites and human beings were first beginning to be launched into space, uh, what came out of that was the UN Outer Space Treaty and the UN Moon Treaty. The Moon Treaty declares the Moon to be the common heritage of all mankind, that people should not lay claim to land on the Moon, it should belong to everyone. And that, of course, has caused a lot of contention, and we can discuss that later. But anyway, the point I want to make is that even at these very early stages of space exploration in the 1960s, there was a question of liberty. Can people claim land on the moon or not? So without necessarily uh, overtly discussing it, people were already having discussions about the extent of human liberty in space. And even quite mundane questions like who is responsible for a satellite that uh, accidentally drops out of orbit and crashes into your house? That's a question of liberty. Who is going to take responsibility uh, for, for the consequences of that sort of crash? Who has uh, the freedom to, to, to declare no responsibility for that? Who is going to accept responsibility for, uh, for that accident? So even in, in that question, there are matters of, of freedom. Uh, and then just finally another example, in the 1960s, people developed regulations for the cleanliness of spacecraft. And this is called planetary protection. So people were concerned about taking microbes to other planets and compromising life detection experiments. That's called forward contamination. Mm. And then there was this idea of back contamination, that if you collect a sample on Mars that contains Martian life and you bring it back to the Earth, you might compromise the Earth's Biosphere. Now, however likely or unlikely you think that is, there is again 
a question of freedom impinging on space exploration. Those planetary protection regulations that exist in the present day have implications of mission costs, uh, the cleanliness that you need to have on a spacecraft when you send it to Mars. This has huge financial implications for the way in which you design a spacecraft and the way in which you clean it. So, so there again, there are implications for the liberty of spacecraft designers and the freedom with which they can just launch a spacecraft to another planet uh, with or without taking into account these planetary protection regulations. So although my particular interest, uh, the, the, the part of liberty I particularly focused on is human organization, which as you say is in the future, you know, what sort of societies are we going to build on the moon or Mars? I think it's also true to say that liberty and the extent of people's liberty has been a factor right from the beginning of the space age, going back to the 50s and 60s. It's just that one of the things that's always surprised me is that people have never framed it in that way. When you read about planetary protection regulations or satellite regulations, you won't see people talking about classical liberalism or, right. or liberty or freedom. And I don't know why that is. It's either because there's an, uh, an inadvertent lack of connection between the, the history of political philosophy and classical liberalism that people have never really taken into the space environment. Or it's going back to the point we made earlier, people don't really want to address that because they consider that to be, um, to have some conflict built into it. This, this idea of liberty versus tyranny and protecting people's liberty, it immediately brings into mind uh, these ideas of, of uh, yes, of protecting, protecting freedoms. And I think people don't like to go there because it, it kicks against this utopian view of space exploration where these questions of tyranny and dictatorship are not things we really want to, to face up to. So people will never discuss the freedom of planetary protection in the context of liberty. They'll talk about it as a policy, space policy implication. So, um, so I think liberty is there in space, whether you like it or not. And it's better to address it head on and to understand when humans go into space, there's going to be arguments about liberty versus tyranny and all points in between. Uh, and as you rightly say, my, my particular personal interest has always been more human organization and less interested in satellite orbits and, uh, and planetary protection, although I've been involved in planetary protection, but I'm much more interested in the, the human aspects of, of social organization. Is it fair to say that in, in, in your view, generally, it's not that space itself, like what it is and what's out there and so on and so forth, uh, presents obstacles and challenges and so on and so forth that are necessarily um, just permanent barriers to human flourishing, but rather that they radically increase the chances of problems like tyranny and so on and so forth. That's exactly right. I think that space is, is in some sense just another place and all those old questions that go back to ancient Athens of uh, you know, how much liberty, how much authority, where do you settle the fulcrum between the collectivism that's needed for a society to, to exist at all and the contract between people that's needed to build a society and, and that conflict with the amount of individual freedom that we have. But those questions that have been in tension in human society since people first settled in the first villages that probably ever existed, uh, will just travel out into space. So in some sense, the questions are not different. But I think you've said exactly what I think is at the core of my thinking is that some of these questions have a greater intensity and the tyranny prone conditions in space um, are, are a particular problem. In other words, space is a more tyranny prone environment. Why, did I, why would I think that? 
Well, we'll actually get to the core of that. I think one of the, uh, the biggest problems in space is the lack of oxygen to breathe. So on our own planet, um, the government cannot control the quantity of oxygen in the atmosphere. They can do some pretty egregious things. Uh, they could put you in a gas chamber, for example, in the Holocaust, although that's not so much removing oxygen, it's introducing a poison into, uh, into the atmosphere that you're breathing. But, but the government can't control the atmosphere on a planetary scale. And so this is a mechanism of coercion. There's never been a problem in dealing with, um, with dictatorship or tyranny uh, on the Earth. But the reason why it should concern us in any location where the government might be able to control oxygen is because you need oxygen on a second-to-second time scale. So if the government denies me food, I can head off with some of my friends into the forest, and I can probably live for a few days and plan a revolution and try and overthrow the government that's trying to deny me food or water. Right. There's a temporal buffer there between the denial of something you require and, and, and the time at which it will kill you, but also those things you can get in the natural environment. You're not in all places on the earth. You live in desert. You can't. In certainly many temperate areas of the world, we can get those things over time in the natural environment. Oxygen you require on a second-to-second time scale. So if the government should deny you that, uh, you are faced with instantaneous death. And it's that single point of, of leverage that exists in the extraterrestrial environment, where there is no environment where oxygen is freely available, that gives a, an immense power uh, to those people running a settlement. Um, and, and I should say, in addition to that, it's not just the oxygen, but it is the lack of freely available liquid water. There's no place in the solar system where there's liquid water that you can drink immediately from the environment. And there's no environment in our solar system where there's naturally growing food that you can eat. So all of these things come together in a nexus, um, oxygen, water, and food, and also power requirements that require considerable human technical effort and interdependency between people to get access to these materials. And it's those things that create, I think, the conditions for the tyranny. And I should say, this is not a new insight. I wouldn't claim that, that I'm the first person to see that. If you look at the, um, uh, that cult film, Total Recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger, so there's a film where a bunch of people are in a habitat and a tyrannical uh, governance is controlling their oxygen. It's not like people haven't thought about this before. It's, it's, uh, you can find it in several places in, um, in science fiction. I think what was always lacking is more of a, how would I put it, more of an academic treatment of this problem. And that's what I've tried to do over the last few years in writing about extraterrestrial liberty, is to try and systematically try and understand this in a little bit more of a formal way, beyond what's already been touched on in, in science fiction. So in summary, I think it's the oxygen problem and, and the lack of other basic resources in space that are freely available that creates an interdependency in society that, that offers itself to, uh, to the tyrannically inclined, or not even the tyrannically inclined, to the, the frailties of, of human, uh, the human desire for power. Yeah, and I think in just carrying forward that that oxygen example a little further, I think that's an excellent point because I think as people start thinking of, for example, like in the future, what happens if there's like a space tyranny? People often start a thought process at the front end that says it's it's like people are planning this from the get go. But I think what's key to understanding what you're talking about is just not necessarily like it, it could start out as like a a, a value free sort of structure that just assembles itself. That is to say, if you want to live on a settlement on Mars or a different planet, for example, the, the power of an oxygen regulator or a filter or whatever, or whatever's on that settlement, for example, is necessarily going to have 
some control over it or most of the control over it by say by like a, a state type of force or perhaps a corporate you know delivery service of it and then when they get together they can talk so really it's an it's an issue of power dynamics and structures in and of itself is what i'm hearing it's not necessarily someone's trying to create exactly. this it's just the power no, itself that's exactly right and and what people misunderstand and i, I constantly have to to remind people i think you just brought this up is that this is again not a pessimism and nor is it a claim that, that tyranny is inevitable it's taking the approach that again it's not new that the founding fathers of the united states understood this and people before them that you assume the worst with the intention of achieving the best if you assume the worst and you construct checks and balances and systems of government that, that make the assumption that people will be tyrannical and you never need those checks and balances, uh, you know, none of us could be happier. <laughs> if we can build utopias on the moon and Mars that remain free societies and we never have to think about tyranny ever again, fantastic. And I would be the first person to be enthusiastic about that. But any designer of free government uh, assumes the worst and constructs the necessary uh, political and economic arrangements to, to prevent those societies from becoming tyrannical. And as I said, they're not needed, then that's a good thing. And I think my argument would be that in space, uh, the chances of tyranny are much greater. So you need to pay attention to building systems of free governance that, uh, that forestall these tyrannical outcomes from the get-go. But there's no inevitability of tyranny in space. It's just tyranny-prone. And I think that word prone is very important. It's uh, it's the fact that society provide that the environment provides the excuses for power in a much greater way than than it does on the earth, and those excuses will be grasped by people with power. If you rightly say, some of these things can come from benevolence. And what's interesting, I think, about these environments, and this is again not new to space. You can see this on the earth, mm. is that some of the arguments for individual liberty provide the excuse for tyranny. So John Stuart Mill's argument for uh, the, um, uh, for the, for the abrogation of liberty. One of the ways in which, one of the, the reasons for, uh, for challenging someone else's liberty is in self-protection. So his view is always, uh, only, only when you have to, uh, protect yourself are you justified in, in, um, in attacking someone else's liberty. But of course, when you live in space, in a lethal environment where a crack visor could kill someone, or a lack of oxygen could mean the immediate deaths of many people. It's easy for an authority to say, well, uh, we're improving your self-protection, your self-preservation mm. by controlling this environment. Because if the airlock is not properly managed or we don't properly watch where you're moving, or we don't properly continuously monitor your habitat, you may not get the oxygen you need. So in, in, in enhancing your self-preservation, we're increasing your freedom. And allowing you to survive. So the very arguments for individual liberty become the instruments of tyranny. And that's a rather cynical, negative outlook. But I think it's essential to understand these things, that um, it, it's not even good enough to simply deploy the traditional arguments of classical liberalism in space to protect tyranny. Those mm -hmm. very arguments can become the levers of power. So one does really need to go back and think about uh, what are the arguments for, for liberty and how do we inculcate them into into society. My own view is that, again, there's no huge amount of originality needed here. What you do is you take many of the mechanisms that we've understood on the earth and you apply them in space, perhaps with a greater strength. For example, if you want to dilute the power of central authority in space, you maximize voluntary association, independent opportunities for people to think separately 
and to bring forward ideas separately from the authority that's controlling the lunar and Martian settlement. We would understand that on the Earth is the necessity of civil society, voluntary associations, intermediate associations, whatever you want to call them, that dilute the power of the state. And I think these are the sorts of things you need to do in space uh, from the get-go. I think that... Uh, I've also, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, no, I've, I've also suggested there are things... So, so one, of the, one of the great differences of, of societies in space is that they will not emerge from um, thousands of years of social organisation. So here on the Earth, we've gone from you know, the democracy of ancient Athens through tyrannies, through to the emergence of nation-states and... Uh, liberal democracies in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. There's a long period of, of trial and error and improvements in systems and, and systems of free government. In space, you're literally landing on a blank canvas, and it's highly revolutionary in that sense. You, you are, when I say revolutionary, I don't necessarily mean revolutionary in intent. I mean a revolutionary society that has no previous order from which to draw. You will literally land on a blank canvas, and these institutions will emerge from nowhere as if you could completely restructure the society. And the problem you have is to create institutions that settle down into a coherent society without causing rupture. And one of the ways I would think you can do this, which I, which I brought up before, is what I call preemptive free governance. So let me just give you an example. Um, if, I, if I'm in an Antarctic station, which is one of the places I've worked in, there are various rules there that control the way in which people behave. For example, the rule might be uh, scientists must clean up the laboratory when they've finished at the end of the day. That is a specific rule directed at scientists. But there's no interest there in creating what one might describe as the rule of law. Now, if you want to create the rule of law in society, you want a regulation that applies to everyone, not just scientists. Uh, and that's the basis of the rule of law, a law that, 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 is, that is widely understood to apply equally to different people. So you could come up with a rule that everyone will clean up their mess at the end of the day, right? And there's a statement that is not directed at scientists but could apply to a chef or anyone else. So what you could do in an early society on the moon or Mars is you could, you could do what I call preemptive free governance, which is to have a, a participatory democracy of a kind that within it already has uh, primitive branches of government. So, for example, you could have two or three people who oversee the settlement and its everyday management, who are a primitive executive branch. You could have three or four people that discuss with the settlement uh, rules and laws, primitive legislature, and they might discuss exactly what I've just given an example of, general rules, not just rules that apply to particular people, but laws, progenitors of laws that apply to everyone. In other words, begin the culture of the rule of law right from the very beginning. And then you might have two or three people that are the judiciary, and in an early settlement, that could be nothing more than a sort of police officer type role you would have in a, you know, in a, in a small settlement on a Scottish island or on a polar base, someone who's responsible for dealing with transgression. And this might seem very comical to talk about the separation of powers in a settlement on the moon of about 15 people. People might go, well, that's completely unnecessary and rather silly. But as a community grows, what you're doing is inculcating into it uh, the principles and the structures of free government. So, so one of the things I think one can do in this idea of preemptive free governance is to say, well, rather than just assume that an early settlement of an informal group of people is going to transition as time goes on, 
into a free government, maybe even a representative democracy when it gets large enough. You should, right from the get-go, try and create the structures of free government, even in a settlement of 10 people on the moon. Mm -hmm. Think about how you can order those people around the basic precepts of, of, uh, of liberty and free government. So again, you know, as I say, some people might regard that as rather comical and unnecessary. But if you accept that space is tyranny prone, there's something to be said for thinking about um, liberal democracy from the first day you arrive on the moon and actually making a, a proactive and conscious effort to build free government uh, from that very first day and onwards. And I think you know, th these sorts of things are, are the ways in which you can head society away from, uh, from tyranny and towards, uh, I guess, more, more felicitous and free ends in a, in, a, in a group of people beyond the earth. Yeah, no, you said, you know, <clears throat> upon first thought, many people might think this is like rather silly, but but I don't think so at all, because I think this is a very pertinent and, and current point. I don't think this is something that if we're serious about the topic of space, we can worry about in 80 years, we have to start thinking about it now as, as you are. I absolutely agree with this because, and, and you tell me if, if you disagree with me, but to me, I view us already risking going the other way, where as space sort of becomes, uh, leans more toward the tyranny, because it is tyranny prone, because we effectively have the the foundation to start sort of like a new form of colonialism in space where you have state interests mixed with certain private interests going to space for certain quests or certain outposts and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. And it can repeat not in the same way, but similar models of the old forms of earth colonialism to other nations that we find as problematic. So to me, I, I at least I think, and again, you tell me if you disagree or, or not, but some of the frameworks being created now are already dangerously leaning that way where certain agendas are at play rather than sort of the, the more liberty prone talk, if you will. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think, I think agendas are always going to be there, right? Of um, course. In some sense, you know, the liberal Democrat, the, the liberal view, the classical liberal view is, is not so much a repudiation of power structures. But, and this is something I actually also think, I mean, just to talk more generally, people often misunderstand classical liberalism as a rejection of power and the, the protection of the individual as separate from that power. In fact, this concept of the state of nature, of, of, of individuals being completely separated and then coming together to make a contract of society, I think is a caricature of classical uh, liberalism. It's, it's not that the individual uh, repudiates power structures and tries to reject them. It's more that we a classical liberal will accept the fact that, that power is an inevitability and try and fashion structures that, that allow the individual to gain some semblance of, of a private life, some liberty within inevitable power structures. So I don't think we should kick against um, agendas and interests in space and corporations trying to take over places. This is an inevitability of human power. What we need to do is to recognise that that's going to happen and then as on the earth, try and carve out a space within that where individuals and groups of individuals have some measure of liberty, some uh, sphere of, of non-interference, and also the capacity to act to implement the ideas that they have. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. If you go to um, Elon Musk, for example, I mean, I can't speak on his behalf, but what I see, the sorts of things that he comes out with and sets, he seems to be someone who's very... Um, pro-liberty. I don't think he has a vision of space exploration as a tyrannical corporation uh, controlling a moon settlement and keeping everyone in a state of slavery. Actually, you know, he, he has a very liberal view of what space can achieve for humanity. 
But of course, SpaceX is a corporation, and it might end up running a corporate village on the moon where it seeks profit. And, and without any particular purposeful direction, it could become tyrannical. But those people who built these, these institutions, like Elon Musk, I don't think are inherently tyrannical people. And that brings me to the point, and the agreement with what you've said, is that if we discuss liberty from the get-go, um, it's not about stopping these corporations from establishing themselves beyond space. Uh, beyond the earth in, in other space environments. It's about while we do that, while governments and, and corporations go into space and inevitably vie with each other for their interests and their agendas, we don't lose sight of continuing a conversation of finding a space within that where individuals have, um, have liberty, just as in societies on the earth, we create laws that allow for us to have equality before the law, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience. These things we tend to and we look after while big corporations are being built, while state power is expanding, as it has done over the last couple of thousand years. As these developments have occurred, uh, those who believe in liberty have made strenuous efforts to maintain that sphere of individual freedom within these changing, ever-growing and, and evolving power structures. So again, this isn't new, uh, but what could happen is if we go into space and we don't think about liberty, before we know it, we've got these very powerful corporations on the moon and Mars who are creating these tyrannical regimes, and then at some point later down the road, suddenly everyone sits back, sits back and thinks, oh, it would have been really good if we thought about freedom <laughs> earlier right. on, because a bit of personal liberty would have been great. Oh, too bad, that's all gone. Uh, and, you know, that's what happens uh, in a very simplified you know, rather naive way, but I mean, that's what happens in in uh, tyrannical societies on Earth. Mm-hmm. People don't look after their liberty. A government takes over, asserts control, and then people uh, it's too too late to wrestle it back, or or to wrestle it to wrestle individual liberty back takes a great deal of uh, trouble. Maybe bloodshed and revolution. That's a very difficult thing to do in space. Mm-hmm. And we can that's another separate discussion: revolution in space. But once you've got tyrannical power structures on the moon or Mars, it may be even more difficult in those locations than on the Earth to wrestle freedom from them. So it's a good idea from the outset, as these power structures emerge and they inevitably vie with each other to control these environments, uh, that within that space, people who are doing, who are building those societies have conversations about uh, individual liberty and creating the the laws and the, the systems of government that allow for uh, for forms of individual and group freedom. Mm-hmm. And, like in other words, it sounds to me like, like, and, and I agree with this. So I would say it too. But it sounds like you're also saying that we need to think more broadly about space as a general social discussion and social project, as well as all the other stuff happening. Because if if we just put our foot on the gas and basically continue to think of it, like a lot of folks do, as as mostly like a science project or sort of just a pure sort of expedition project, we're sort of going to sprint before we're even walking here right into problems that you just outlined. Yeah, so particularly if we continue with this utopian view that says, oh, we, we mustn't talk about liberty in space because that's going to create conflict. <laughs> and, and if you start talking about creating liberties to stop tearing your politicizing space, people don't like this. I mean, I have experience of this, giving lectures on, you know, talks on uh, engineering freedom into settlements in space. And I, some people like it and they enjoy the discussion. But I've also had people sort of say to me, you're politicizing space. It's really disappointing. You're supposed to be a scientist. You're supposed to be believing in 
space as being a non-political environment where we can all do science and exploration. You're talking about tyranny, and that's to that's to introduce human conflict, but it's also to try and draw these historical problems into space, like fighting against tyranny, because it leads to questions of how do you defend freedom in space. Inevitably, that takes you into conversations about having weapons in space. So once you start talking about liberty and freedom, you, you talk about defending freedom. And people don't like that, because mm-hmm. it's going into the realms of what they perceive to be a big problem in human history that we should be trying to prevent from taking into space. And I think my argument would be, even if everyone agreed not to fight amongst themselves or between each other, uh, between nation states, tyranny will emerge from within the body politic, from within a group of people. It doesn't require an external threat. Tyranny will, will emerge from the power structures that happen within a group of individuals, where you always have individuals trying to dominate. Some of those individuals will be um, extraordinarily benevolent, but there will always be the malevolent actor uh, who will who will seek to seize power. And that's just the inevitability of human power structures. So talking about liberty is not politicised. Well, it is politicising space, but it's it's politicising it in a way that uh, that is inescapable. And if we want to build free societies, we must talk about how we are going to uh, to create free societies. If you believe in in doing that, which I happen to believe in doing. Great. I think that's an excellent place to take our break, actually. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Charles Cockell today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ben Hobbs, Amy Willis, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Charles Cockell today. Charles, uh, I think the first half of our conversation was great. I think we explored a lot of great concepts. I want to actually get into a couple of specific questions I have uh, that I think really tease out your your thoughts now. Um, Because in one of your essays, you actually outline what you sort of call the, the four buffers to tyranny. And I think that this is very interesting because if I sort of toss them at you, I think that you'll it'll give you a chance to show our listeners the kind of, you know, more specifically ob- problematic obstacles to like, you know, how, how space is ultimately, uh, you know, tyranny prone. So you basically say, and the way you define these these buffers is you basically say, if they fall, you have absolute tyranny kind of thing. So the model is that you say, um, you know, for instance, rebelling openly and disagreeing, that's a buffer to tyranny. Escaping into oneself, that's a buffer to tyranny. The individual acceptance or complete acquiescence, that's a buffer to tyranny to consider. And then escaping together, altogether physically, you say. So, for example, what what do you mean escaping into oneself? How is this a buffer to tyranny? And why would it be different consideration and something we should think seriously about when it comes to Earth versus space? Yeah, this is a sort of stoic retreat from um, from tyranny. And I'm not advocating it's a good thing, but you know, it's a it's a classic way of of escaping uh, tyrannical regimes, and particularly those that that may be physically violent, which is to maintain the freedom within oneself. Uh, Victor Frankl, for example, um, you know, classically to, to to 
to raise an extreme environment, he talks about the fact that when he was in uh, Auschwitz, Birkenau, and Dachau concentration camps, he describes how, despite in those being in those conditions, most extreme conditions that a human could imagine being in, he maintained the capacity to to, to control his his behaviour towards others. And he describes that as a form of freedom, independence of mind. That whatever anyone else is doing to you, within your own mind, you can decide how you're going to behave towards someone else. So even in in states of complete tyranny, within your own head that the the tyrant can't get in there. Uh, I, I can't guarantee that would always be the case. Maybe in the future, right. if everyone's got a neuralink in their brain, even the tyrant will get into people's brain. But at least as things stand at the moment, uh, your own thoughts within your own head, um, it can uh, not easy at least for a tyrant to, uh, to control. So one way in which people could escape uh, tyranny to some degree is that in the space environment, uh, you simply retreat into your own mind inside a habitat on a planet where the outside conditions are instantaneously lethal. So I think my only point was that that's a buffer to tyranny in the sense that um, you can obtain some degree of, of internal liberty in your own mind. But there's nothing to recommend it. A, a group of slaves sitting in a, in a habitat controlled by a tyrannical management, uh, for example, on the moon and Mars, where the only freedom they have is within their own skulls. And there's no external capacity to express those freedoms. It's not really the sort of capacious idea of freedom that we want to create in space, but it is a buffer. Ultimately, it is a buffer to tyranny that you see on the earth where people can get some meaning in life by at least having the thoughts inside their own head. And of course, you, you see this in, in, um, in books written in, in prison, for example, when Nehru wrote his book about the history of India and the future of India, his vision of India when he was constantly being imprisoned by the British imperial authorities. He wrote that book in prison. I mean, these are examples of the way in which people can express liberty even when they're inside a prison. But it's not, a, it's, it's not the sort of liberty I think one wants to uh, establish as a basis of a free society, but, uh, but it is a buffer. And, and that is, if you're in the extraterrestrial environment, uh, it would be very difficult to remove that from people. So there's always a little bit of freedom that wants to remain even in the in the most uh, dictatorial regime, mm -hmm. and and that's great. So that that's the sort of like internal psychological, if you will, and on the external action point, the the sort of idea of re rebelling openly and disagreeing. If there's either a direction of tyranny be, being run down, or or there's tyranny itself. Of course, as we know from human history, re rebelling openly, or, or like if if the extreme case calls for it, or simply disagreeing with others yeah. is, is is the way we we interact. And and, and you note that that actually is going to be a, a lot more difficult in space for very specific reasons. And, and that's something we have to watch out for. So I was wondering if you want to elaborate yes. on that. So when you're, when you're living on the moon or Mars, there's going to be a network of unelected officials who control safety in all of its varieties. You know, on the Earth, we have lots of networks of health and safety, probably all aware of those. But, but on the moon or Mars, you know, you've got safety surrounding instant depressurization, which can kill a large number of people. You've got dust incursions on the moon and Mars. That dust may be toxic. Uh, you've got high radiation levels. Someone's got to watch that. You've got airlocks that have got to be properly maintained. The, the sheer extent of the number of dangers, physical dangers, will create an all-embracing structure of, of uh, the demand for, for safety. And within such an environment, it's easy for any demands for um, the self-expression to be quashed. 
using the excuse that it represents a threat to safety. Now, yet again, without labouring the point, there's nothing new about this. I mean, we've seen this in this period of COVID, uh, and that's not unique either. Safety is always, public safety is always the first excuse for dismantling liberties. And powers that seek to expand their influence in society have always used public safety, whether it's an internal thing like a virus or an external threat from a foreign power. Uh, these are the time-honored methods of dismantling or having the excuses to dismantle liberty. Again, not, not inevitably, but by those people who have a penchant for power and control over people. So if you live in an environment where the outside environment is instantaneously lethal and there's a large amount of safety surrounding survival in that environment and the production of basic commodities like oxygen, water and food, it's not that inevitably people can't have a, a wonderfully free society where everyone is expressing their point of view and they all have a rambunctious individualism and say what they want. Maybe such societies will eventually exist on the moon Mars. Going back to the earlier point, it's the fact that there will always be uh, those individuals who will use those conditions as an excuse to curtail um, the expression of individual uh, of individual ideas ideas and views. I mean, let me just give you a, a personal anecdote. It's a trivial one, but it's an example of this sort of thing. I, I used to work at the British Antarctic Survey, and I was in Antarctica, this was about 20 years ago now, and we had a rotor where we had to work with the kitchen staff. And the rotor was very strict because it was considered part of the collective idea of, you know, survival in that environment. On the, on the evening I was supposed to be in the kitchen, I needed to do a science experiment. So I volunteered, so I informally agreed to swap with the person doing the rotor the next day to swap places. And we didn't write that on the rotor. So when a different person turned up that evening, all hell broke loose that I had changed the rotor without agreeing this with the, you know, with, with the station management. So so there's a there's an example of something and then I you know I had to profusely apologize for having violated the the organisation says so something absolutely trivial, cleaning up some dishes that in any other environment uh, people wouldn't even notice. But in an extreme environment, it becomes part of the uh, the structure of social conformity. You know, you violated this rule, even though it hasn't killed anyone. In spirit, it has gone against the requirement for that collective organisation. And what the authorities can do is they can elevate these transgressions to public um, obloquy. You know, they can they can make it known in the station, even if not formally, just through chit chatter, that, oh, so-and-so didn't do that task and they should have done. And, and so those people who seek power uh, can use quite trivial transgressions in an environment where collective organisation instant lethality is the norm as the mechanism of social control. And this goes back to John Stuart Mill, Mill's observations on on conformity, you know, the, the the tyranny of the majority as well, top bill recognised, the tyranny of the majority in a democracy where the majority view becomes uh, the all-encompassing view that, that quashes minority views. But in fact, it's worse than that. It's not just a tyranny of the majority. It's an all-encompassing uh, conformity that grips an entire settlement in extreme, in extreme conditions where people are terrified of transgressing even the most trivial rules because they don't want to become the focus of attention or be seen to be threatening the rules on which the very survival of a community depends. So in summary, um, health and safety, the conformity that emerges from that 
becomes an instrument of power uh, for those people who who wish to to seize those those levers of power, and that will be inescapable in the extraterrestrial environment. Um, how do you avoid that? Well, you need to. Um, there are a variety of ways. For example, you need to educate people in science and technology as much as possible. That may sound like a strange suggestion, but if people understand the mechanisms of oxygen, water, and food production, they are more confident to be able to challenge decisions and statements made by authorities. Um, also, you need to inculcate um, a greater variety of voluntary associations in an extraterrestrial environment, uh, provide the, the mechanisms and the conduits for people to express views. But you also need to have, and again, this sounds trivial, but as much open discussion as possible, like a sort of participatory democracy. In Antarctic stations, you might gather together and talk about everyday events or discuss the um, concerns in the community. And that comes a way for people to vent concerns and to vent their, um, their, own, um, uh, their own views of what may or may not have been done right or wrong in the community. So, so again, conversation is important. Again, it sounds like a very simple thing, but you need mechanisms of dissent. People have to be able to say, I feel like there was too much control over that decision. And then other people in the community can then either agree with that or not. But, but, but that's a very important part of it. So it's not, I, I think like as on the earth, there's no, there's no magic wand to create a liberal society beyond the earth. There's not one or two levers that you can pull. It's a whole collection of constellation of different things from voluntary association to participatory democracy through to a free press, through to uh, flexible methods of government. And engineering as well. I've also written papers on how you might mitigate some of these problems by actually thinking about the way you engineer a satellite right from the get-go. So all of these things you want to think about right from the beginning to, to build, a, build a free society. Mm -hmm. and, and when you pair everything you just said with a, another one of the buffers that you say, which is escaping altogether physically, I find that very interesting because, of, of course, you know, we shouldn't trivialize the matter. I, mean, I, I know you don't. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying it for the benefit of the listeners that, of course, you know, we're not saying here that rebelling openly and disagreeing and escaping altogether physically a tyranny on Earth, if it emerges, is, is the easiest thing to do or, or that people have not yeah. been unable to do that. But I think right. it's very interesting when you pair the relative capability many people have on earth to rebel yeah. openly and disagree or move or escape altogether physically and think about how that at least at the very beginning will be necessarily quite less uh in space if, if we think about it that way um that, that's quite scary one I, yeah one of those papers i think i described as a natural berlin wall uh, if you want to stop people from moving around on the earth uh, tyrants have to uh to bring forward you know, quite radical arguments to keep people where they are physically, mm -hmm. stop them moving. I mean, you either physically stop them from leaving the country by removing their passports and, and or building a Berlin Wall-style physical structure. You don't need to do that in space. The outside environment will kill you instantly. So you're not going to leave the settlement. And worse than that, if, even if you do demand to leave, uh, the authority can say, ah, oh, you're absolutely right, we're, we're tyrants, we're terrible people, um, you know, let me open the airlock and you can escape from our terrible, tyrannical regime. Right. So freedom can become quite cynical in such environments. But, you know, this is the problem that that not being able to walk out onto the lunar surface is not a denial of liberty. So, for example, uh, the fact that I can't walk out of my house 
and put on a pair of wings and flap them and, and disappear off into the sky. It's not a denial of liberty. It's a, it's a fact of physics. And the problem in the extraterrestrial environment is not being able to leave a settlement and walk out across the lunar surface. It's not a denial of liberty. It's a physical reality. But that physical reality is an excuse to create um, social structures of tyranny that can be justified by the fact that, you know, you can't walk out onto the lunar surface. We have to control you. We're not being tyrannical because, as you're aware, if you walk out of that airlock, you're going to die. So we're not tyrants. We're actually preserving. Mm. We're we're allowing your self-preservation. We're enhancing your liberty by controlling you. These are the sorts of arguments that are not new. We see these things on the Earth, but they're intensified in space, intensified to such a level where there is the possibility for a very extreme abject tyranny in, in some of these in some of these environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and even just from like a pure private civil perspective, I mean, like, you know, the, the relatively speaking, again, on Earth, the ability many people have to simply uh, move around or, or try out a different area of life physically. I mean, right now, yes. people are very obsessively talking about the price of and the cost of tickets to space. Well, what about the price and costs of tickets between planets or back to Earth if you don't like it, for example? I mean, that in yeah. and of itself is just an economic restraint that's going to be huge. Exactly. And the people, some people follow James Schwartz, Jim Schwartz, who's done a lot of space philosophy. He's written a paper on the right to leave, where he talks about, you know, um, that, that in space, there may be certain rights that would look quite strange on the earth, but where the importance to building societies where people want to live in these environments may, may elevate these things to a right. So, you, for example, you can create the right to leave where someone if they want to leave a settlement because they perceive it to be tyrannical, they should have the right to get out of that settlement. Of course, it's no good having the right to leave if you're in a tyranny where that right is not recognised in the first place. It's not going to do you a lot of good. But but again, if you have um, if you have spaceships that allow easy and free movement through the solar system, for example, Elon Musk is successful with his Starship and it creates mass-produced spacecraft that allow for rapid movement of goods and people across the solar system, it may be easy to create or easier to create systems in the solar system where economic and political systems where people can decide to leave and come back to the earth. And where if uh, an authority tries to stop them from leaving, it will be apparent that that is an unreasonable state of affairs, an unacceptable state of affairs. The problem is where you've got isolated settlements that are very difficult to physically get out of because traveling through the solar system is very difficult. People are essentially isolated in these places where where power can become total. It's very difficult for people to get out of the settlement once they're in there. Uh, these sorts of things could lead to, uh, you know, really quite unpleasant environments that are difficult to escape from. Absolutely. And I'm just keeping an eye on our time here. It is winding down. This is a very, this is a fascinating topic and we could go on for a while, but time is, time is finite here. So before we actually move to our formal wrap up and, and to wrap up the episode, I just wanted to toss it to you because you and I were chatting very briefly that you actually have a book coming out soon. Why don't yeah, you tell I'll our audience about book. that? <laughs> I actually have, a, I mean, I've written a number of essays in journals, but I actually have a, I have a book coming out with Oxford University Press that will be out at the end of June. It's called Interplanetary Liberty building free societies in the cosmos. And it's essentially a classical liberal view of space settlement, talking about many things that we've been discussing, as well as art and engineering and education and all the different ways in which one might think about uh, creating believers and mechanisms to build free government in space. It's a sort of personal classical liberal view on building 
free societies beyond the earth. So there's that if anyone's interested in in thinking about this um, a little bit more. Excellent. Oh, I know I'll definitely be reading it. So maybe after I read it, well, you can come back. We can talk about it some more. Sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. So Charles, I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up. Um, you know, in, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word and a chance to wrap everything up and bring us full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the main question. So let me officially ask you now, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why freedom is important to think about beyond earth? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave this whole conversation with just yeah. one, two or a few takeaways, what would those ultimately be? You know, I think a comment I would make is that we've only just begun the conversation in, in, in classical liberalism and liberty. So people think the last 2000 years have been very rich, rich conversation in political philosophy. The human future is potentially vast. You know, we've just talked about liberty on planet Earth in the last 2,000 years. There are endless worlds and planets and empty spaces uh, in, in the realms beyond the Earth where we're going to have to think about liberty. So I think my take-home message would be um, we've only just begun talking about freedom and liberty. So my recommendation would be that uh, people should realize this is a very exciting future for political philosophy. There's lots to be done. There's lots of thinking to be done. And the... Uh, the answers we give to some of these questions may affect the lives of, of, of many human beings. We don't know how many, but many human beings living beyond the Earth. And, of course, those ideas we take beyond the Earth, they ultimately affect liberty back on the Earth. So I think my concluding point would be um, uh, let's keep discussing classical liberalism and use space as an opportunity to reinvigorate these discussions on human freedom and to begin new discussions of, of freedom uh, beyond the Earth and on Earth over the next few thousand years of our civilization. It's a very exciting future. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. So, Charles Cockell, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks a lot, Alex. It's been great to talk. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.